We're going to stay in 1 Samuel, chapter 24. We're going to reread just the first six verses. 1 Samuel, chapter 24, verse 1 through 6, one more time. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is a day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose up and stealthily, which basically means crept up unaware or unnoticed, he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him, or he became conscience-stricken, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. So that you can get the background of this story, I want... uh, want the overhead to show you a picture or two. In 2013, I had the opportunity to go to Israel. And one of the places that I went to is one of the places that we read. And it was one of Ken Powell's favorite places, I'm sure. And he went with me. We had a great time. And if you look carefully here, this, this is only a portion of it. Can we show another picture? Here are some examples. I don't know how well you can see it. It's so bright out outside. But here are examples where there are caves throughout this sort of like mountain range. And it was called En Gedi, which basically means the place for wild goats. Do you have one more picture? This will give you also an idea. Very, very difficult to get around. Dangerous even but a great hideout spot. Well, Saul had heard that David was, was in this area. So David is being now pursued by Saul. What we're doing here in our, in our sermon today and what we've been trying to do for several weeks is we're going over the life of David. Like we did the life of Abraham, we're going through the life of David. Because the New Testament tells us that we can go back in the old and from it we can learn things that we can apply to ourselves today in what we would call the church age. And in David's life, if we look at the whole span of his life from when he began his ministry to when he died, we see a man of God, a man who was a man after God's own heart, We see him as a man of faith. We know that from the book of Hebrews chapter 11. But we also see with David, besides his faith, we see his flaws. Which instructs us that we can learn from somebody not just because of their faithfulness or because of admirable things in their life, but we can learn from somebody by the mistakes they make and the flaws that may characterize them at, at times. 
And all of us have them. But we hopefully do have living examples besides biblical examples, both in the Old and in the New Testament. We hopefully can find a fellow brother, a fellow sister, one, two, three, or more, that we can admire and say, that's the kind of Christian I want to be. That's the kind of person I want to be like. I want to have that joy. I want to have that peace. I want to display the love of Christ in my life like they do. And their faith becomes worthy of following. Now let's break this down a little bit. In verse 3 it says that he, that is Saul, came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. It actually means that he went in to take a nap or he was tired, he went to sleep. Now these caves were so large that hundreds of people could actually fit inside the cave. So David and his men, he had a whole bunch of men with him. Saul had an army of men with him. And interestingly, all of David's men are in the hinder part, the back part of the cave. And Saul comes in the front part of the cave. Understand that. Huge cave. Not a cave that you and I would normally think of, but exceptionally, exceptionally large. The sheep would have been kept down by the roadside where there would have been a large sheep pen so the men could have retreated themselves up into the mountains and lodge in the caves. And that's exactly what David did. So Saul, coincidentally, goes into the very cave that David is in. He's pursuing him. And from some of the pictures that you saw, if you can kind of look at that, what are the chances that you're going to bump into the very person that you're looking for. The odds would be strongly against you. My wife and I went out to eat the other night uh, in kind of a remote area and before too long, my cousin and his wife sat at the very next table to us. What a surprise. But here is an opportunity for David to do something. It seems like here his pursuer who's out to kill him the one who wants to murder him is right there before his eyes, asleep, and with his men also, wherever they were, they were not involved. David has this opportunity to take his life. Do you ever go on a vacation somewhere like way far away and you bump into your next door neighbor? Or you bump into someone who you went to school with you're like, wow, I'm on the other side of the world and you bump into somebody. Well, this is the kind of situation where Saul and David are in the very same location. We can't let circumstances, though, dictate to us what we ought to do sometimes. Because David could have thought, wow, here's my opportunity. And he was being... Motivated by his men. Whoa, look at this, David. This is a great opportunity for you to take vengeance on your enemy and look at where God has placed him in the very place in a sound asleep where you can kill him. David had other thoughts than what was advised to him. Sometimes we look at circumstances and we think this is the ideal situation. 
and they think too that God has provided it in this way for me to act in a certain way and it's obvious because God has done it this way. For instance, when the Lord had told Jonah that he was to go to Nineveh and to preach the preaching that God wanted him to preach, he could not accept that. He had difficulties in processing him a Jew going to a Gentile city and proclaiming the Word of God. So what he does, he goes down to the shoreline as he's probably contemplating what he's going to do. And what does he find in the shoreline? A ship docked ready to take off to go to Tashish, which was in the exact opposite direction. He could have concluded and said, Wow! There's my answer to prayer. God is obviously changing things around now and there's the boat for me to go in that direction. I'm sure you too have had conflicts like that where things have just suddenly shown up and you say, boy, I think the Lord is telling me something. That's something we have to be careful about. I was counseling a, a, a friend of mine um, who had been going through a real tough marriage. His wife was on the verge of divorcing him. And rightfully so, the way he was living, his womanizing lifestyle, was finally caught up with him. His wife was extremely distraught and didn't want to have anything to do with him. He comes to me, tells me the story. So we started the process of marital counseling. I was trying to give him instructions what he should do under the circumstances. Number one, humble yourself. Be honest. Be confessional. Tell her exactly what you've done and that you want, you're a changed person and you don't want to do those things. And he desperately did seem like he wanted his wife back. You know, he had the whole thing. He lost weight. He was just depressed. And this wasn't just your everyday guy. He had restaurants down at Cape Cod. He had properties all over the place. The Cape down in Fort, Fort Lauderdale, very wealthy man, but he wanted his wife. And I was so glad to be able to try to counsel him. Well, he wasn't making much progress. She lived at the Cape at the time. He had to go down to uh, do some of his business down in Fort Lauderdale. He goes into the gym and he sees a pretty 26-year-old girl in the gym that caught his eye. During a break time... Both he and she were in the same break room having a bite to eat, whatever. He got in conversation with her. And before you know it, he has a quick falling in love with this girl. He calls me on the phone because we're going through a process of phone calling one another uh, and trying to counsel over the phone. He says, Gary, you wouldn't believe what happened. You know how depressed I am. I haven't been able to eat and whatnot. He says, I went down to Fort Lauderdale. I went to the gym that I always go to and I met the girl of my life. And I says, oh, no, Billy, you're kidding me. Don't tell me that. He says, yeah, God provided. What a difference it made. My face has changed. I'm happy. I'm eating again. I says, Billy, that's wrong. Don't interpret that as if God was trying to give you a way out in something that could sort of satisfy you for the moment. I had a difficult time in trying to show him that. Not being a believer, of course, made it even more difficult. So we can't look at circumstances sometimes as being the grounds for I'm deciding on something. And David had second thoughts about, should I administer a murder here? Rightfully so. He could have justified that it was appropriate because he was being pursued and his life was at stake. Now his men, on the other hand, let's look at what they say. Verse 4, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day. 
of which the Lord said to you, where the Lord said it, we have no record of them saying this. This is their interpretation, what they think, I believe, the Lord said. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So here it is, David. This is an opportunity for you to get him. He's after you. We've been running from him. He's chasing us. Maybe you have a Saul in your life that's chasing you too. And you have some... some you have to deal with this. You have a, a tough situation on your hands. And you have others that may be trying to encourage you to do what inwardly you might not be comfortable with. David, now we see his actions is that he arose, it says, and crept up unnoticed. He crept up unnoticed and he cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He didn't listen to the masses. Thank you, David, for your example. The Scripture says, follow not a multitude to do evil. I can remember in my pre-converted days, I wanted to follow the crowd. I wanted to be on the inside. I wanted to be in the in crowd. I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be like, so naturally I'm going to act and think and do just like what everybody around me does so that I can fit in with the crowd. David had justification. All of his men, all of his soldiers, many of them are good, solid men, faithful men like David. David, this is your opportunity. David hesitated to follow through on that. We have to ask ourselves, are we followers? Are we, do we have convictions of our own to do what is right and pleasing in God's sight? Now, I'm not trying to advocate that we be isolated or independent from advice that people can give to us. Certainly, the Bible teaches us that in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And David could have said, all the men are in a full agreement, a unanimous that I should kill Saul, king, the anointed one. And he went up to Saul, probably hesitating, wondering, what should I do as I approach him? Should I kill him or should I not kill him? Saul is sound asleep. This is a golden opportunity for him to put away his enemy. And what does he do? He just snips off a little piece of his royal robe. And he takes it, and as it were, he puts it in his pocket. He has the king's piece of robe in his pocket, and Saul, King Saul, is sound asleep, has no idea what has transpired. And verse 5 says, And afterward, David's heart struck him, or another translating of it would be, and afterward, he became conscience-stricken. Conscience-stricken. You would say, David, that was something very minor what you did. What's the big deal? You cut off a piece of his robe? That's nothing. You could have cut, off, cut his throat. That's what they wanted him to do, to cut his throat, to kill him. But in place of that, he chose to just cut his robe. David was conscience-smitten. How do you feel when somebody hurts you or somebody 
after you or someone as an enemy is pursuing you in some way, how do you respond to that? What is your reaction? Do you only care about yourself to try to justify yourself? David, as we have been saying, would be very justified in killing Saul. But there's something about Saul that he had to recognize. Number one, that this was still the Lord's anointed. And we can go back to chapter uh, 9 and 10 and we'll see, how we could see there how that he became the anointed king of Israel, the first king of Israel. And that had not to- in, in, in total been removed from, his, from him. He still was holding the office of the king. So David, that was something very much on the back of his mind. But the other thing too, he didn't want to kill him. He just wanted to take a piece of his robe. And he uses that, and we'll get to that in a second. As we read on further in verse 6, it said, He said to his men, now these are the men that were trying to prompt him into go and kill Saul. He said, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, small letter L, the Lord, capital L, anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. In other words, it wasn't his responsibility to deal with Saul. He had confidence, like the Bible says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He believed that God would take care of Saul and it turned out that God did take Saul's life and David didn't have to. Now, Saul kept pursuing David after this incident, by the way, in a very similar situation where David again was able to go right up to Saul while he was sound asleep. And on this case, chapter 26, I believe it is, that his sword was right there in the ground next to him. He could have very easily taken that sword of his and, and handed, it, handed it right into his body. But he chose there, again, not to do it, but has a similar attitude as we're finding right here in this instance as well. Now, I want you to uh, follow along with me. You don't have the text up. Maybe you don't have it up here. But just listen up here for uh, another point I would like to bring to your attention. After David also rose and went out of the cave, and he called after Saul, My Lord the King! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And Saul's probably thinking, what's he talking about? And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for He is the Lord's anointed. Verse 11, See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. Isn't that something? He flashed that. Almost to say, Whose is this? What would that say to Saul? You got that close to me? My robe, which I took off when I went to to sleep, which was laid right next to me, you actually were that close to me? And here is the evidence that he was that close to him. He could have killed him, but he just sniffed off a piece of his garment. Again, verse 11, See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For... By fact, 
by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. To this we want to take our hat off to David. To this we want to say, that's a man of God. That's a man after God's own heart. That's a man that has forgiveness. That's a man that's willing to put himself into God's care and to not try to take matters into his own hands. What a wonderful example David is from that standpoint. You know, you and I have conflicts with people. I'm sure there's somebody somewhere that you may have had a falling out with. I certainly have over the course of my life and of course even my Christian life. And so we, we have a responsibility to how do we handle that? You know, the good thing about the Bible is that the Bible tells us that it's written for our instruction so that the man of God, the woman of God can be fully furnished for every good work. The Bible hasn't left anything out to leave us deficient. You know, when you think of it, Every Sunday when you come here, either me or one of the other brothers will open up this book and speak out of this book. Not just here, but all over the world, wherever Christians gather on a Sunday, they're opening up the same book. And in some churches, preachers have been preaching out of the same book for 50 years. Somebody like Martin Lloyd-Jones and others that have gone through the Bible over and over and over again. But what's amazing is that every generation since Christ's resurrection and since the inspiration of the whole of the Bible, the New Testament was completed, God's people always take this book. This is the guide of my life. I'm hanging my soul on this. Everything depends on what this says. The Bible says if Christ isn't risen, then is my preaching vain. And your faith would also be vain. It would be meaningless. Paul goes on to say, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. Aren't you glad that we have a hope beyond this world? Because sometimes things can be pretty, pretty bad. Life can be a bummer. Life can be tough. Situations can be bad. And there's really no earthly solution sometimes to the conditions that someone may find themselves with. It could be health-wise. It could be family issues. It could be dysfunctionality in a home that causes this constant monkey on your back, as it were, that you just can never seem to shake. How do we resolve these kinds of situations? Well, praise the Lord that the Scriptures are written for the very purpose to be able to guide us in our life. I've been ministering to a brother very strongly lately and trying to help a certain situation and I had recommended to him to pick up the book of Proverbs. And because of the, I've been giving him assignments to read in the Scriptures in certain portions, I said, start at chapter 11 of Proverbs and read through to the last chapter of the book. Why would I do that? Because Proverbs is heavenly wisdom for an earthly path. It's a dynamite book. It's a book that you want to have your highlighter in your hand. 
It's a book that you want to go through carefully, slowly, meditatively, because what it will do, it will give you instruction and guidance for life. The book of Psalms, similarly, in many of those Psalms, the majority of them were written by David. In circumstances like this that David finds himself in, he writes about. But you know, in all of his life circumstances, like it should be with each of us, we should all be taking this to the Lord. God is over all things to the church. That's a great place to know where it is. It's in God's hand. He's got the whole world in His hand. He's got you and me, brother, in His hand. He's got you and me, sister, in His hand. He's got the little bitty baby in His hand. He's got the whole wide world in His hands. Who knows that? The people of God. Because our confidence is not in ourselves. It's not in circumstances. It's not in life situation. Our confidence is in the Lord. And that confidence can come from this book. Like the hymn writer said, My hope on nothing less is built than Jesus Christ. That's where my hope lies. Every other ground is, is shifting sand. It's uncertain. Lots of people, they go through different stages in their life. They're happy, they're sad. They're happy, they're sad. Things are going thing, good. Things are going bad. Things are up, things are down. Relationships are good. I'm hot, cold, hot, cold. It's like a merry-go-round. There's no stability there. The Bible tells us that Christ, every, he that hears my word and obeys them is like a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And when the rain came and the, and the, and the floods came and the winds blew... The house on the rock stood firm. So build your life upon the Lord Jesus Christ. What a strong foundation. The Bible says, Paul says, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What He means to you will make all the difference in the world in how you live and how you get through this lifetime. Christ. Paul talks about Him being our all in all. He is my everything. It doesn't dismiss me from my earthly attachments to people and places and things. I'm not saying that. I've not become a monk. I'm not an ascetic, uh, super spiritualist that is living in a, in a heavenly realm and not realizing that my feet are on the ground. But I do have a purpose in life. Like the Apostle says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We all always have to ask ourselves, what am I living for? What am I here for? Where am I going in my life? What is the end of the whole thing? I think all of us have been through difficult times and even as Christians, maybe you're going through difficult times. And being a pastor, I often hear situations and I'm like, well, I didn't know that. I would never know that. But boy, it's a real thing. And I'm sure out of the hundred people or more here today that you all, somebody here, and a few of you maybe, are having a difficult time with something or other that you just can't seem to shake. And it's not easy. And I'm not trying to say that it's just simple. Just pray and it'll all going to go away. But God can provide a way for you that you can't find for yourself. And ask someone who is a Christian and say, well, how, how do you do it? How do you manage it? How do you keep a happy marriage? How do you order your family the way they are? How do you run your business or, or, or work with fellow 
um, employees and get along. This book is written so that we can be guided by it. David's life was under the control of God. I can't emphasize enough that he is described in the Scriptures as a man after God's own heart. Wouldn't that be an awesome statement to be said about you? Brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, they are a person after God's own heart. The only way you can really be a person after God's own heart is if you know His heart. How are you going to know His heart? You have to have a relationship with Him. Some of us who do have a relationship with Him might be ones that have a communion that's rather distant from Him. And I think we all go through periods of those times where we wonder, Lord, where are you? And maybe we should be saying, Lord, where am I? Because I'm the one to be blamed to where I am in my life at this time. And I can't really blame you. But I can say like the psalmist says, that don't let heaven be like brass that I can't break through on. Be not thou silent unto me, O Lord. Lest if thou be silent, I become like them that go down to the pit. The greatest asset the believer has is this communion with God. Now that sounds mysterious to the average person on the street. You're claiming you have communion with God? Yes, I do. The Bible says that the Spirit of God upon me and you as believers has sealed us and united us spiritually with God. He is the head and we are the body. We have a spiritual vitality with God. We are a viable person in union with a holy God. So we're never at a loss, brothers and sisters. We got Him with us all the time. He promises I'll never leave you or forsake you. The Bible says He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. The greatest asset we can have is to have the Lord in our life who says, I will dwell in them and walk in them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. I ask myself, and I'm sure you do sometimes, if it weren't for God's mercy in saving you, I was saved at the age of about 20, almost 23. I ask myself, where would I be today if the Lord hadn't intervened in my life? I was coasting a long life. But underneath the surface, there was convictions. There was... A sense that something is missing in my life. What is that? Praise God that I wasn't left to my own thinking. I do believe that God started to work in me. And I wasn't, so to speak, a, uh, I wasn't brought up in a Bible home, a Bible-believing home like some of these kids here are. Some of you older ones too, maybe as well. So I really had no familiarity with the Bible or the things of God like we would today. It was all foreign to me. But somehow God cuts through all of that, gets to the, to the inner part of our being and starts to operate within us and creates in us spiritual realities that we never thought about before. And that's how we were described. We were dead in trespasses and in sins. And when a new birth occurs, it's called a quickening or being made alive. So there's only two kind of people in the world. Those that are alive and 
those that are dead. Those that are alive are the ones that have been made alive by the Lord. They have life in Christ. Those that have not experienced Christ personally, they don't have life. And I sympathize with them because when the wind and the waves and the rain comes, they don't have a firm foundation. When Jesus was with disciples and disciples by name, He told them certain things and they said, whoa, 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 this is too hard. I, and I used to think that way too. When I started reading the Bible, here I'm a kid in college, hooping it up, and I'm reading things like, whoa, I said, oh, man, that must be for the priests. That must be for the first century people who were reading this book. Me in college, when I'm kind of, you know, having high on the saddle, life is great, and yet the Scriptures are convicting me and telling me just the opposite of the way I was living. I didn't have a foundation at the time. And when things started to fall out, I began to realize I need something like the psalmist says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. I love that verse. As a matter of fact, that might be my very favorite verse. I preached at a funeral one time where there was a hundred and something young people who were there for a funeral of a girl that had overdosed. And I know that many of them were hooked on drugs themselves and I looked at them, all of them, in the cemetery and I said, you need to look to the rock that is higher than yourself. And I can't tell you how many different funerals I've done and been around with young and older people that have died for similar reasons. Drug abuse. Horrible. I want to tell those that are users, there is a rock that's higher than yourself. Higher than the, than the alcohol. Higher than the marijuana. Higher than the cocaine. A real high that comes from God and God only. What a difference that makes in your life. When you don't need to depend on artificial substances, but you've got the real de- deal. Jesus says, you, uh, I am come that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ. And in knowing Him, Jesus says, and you shall have life and life abundantly. That's the kind of life that the Lord offers to us, is an abundant life. Who would not want to take that? Who would not want to have that? Who doesn't want to have joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance? That's the ideal that comes with, with conversion. So Jesus says to His disciples certain things, and they said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? And many of them went back and walked no more with Him. There was a remnant that stayed around and he said to them, are you going to go away also? And Peter pipes up and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? I can remember speaking at another funeral too. A funeral where young people were actually taking whiskey bottles, brand new, just bought out of the package store, even some of them were in packages, and putting them in the casket with the body. Others were vomiting in the bathroom because they were high from the night before or whatever. And that was a, I said, what am I gonna, how am I gonna, what am I gonna say to these, these, these folks? That was a verse that came to me. To whom shall we go? Peter said. They said, this is too high. We're, we're out of here. The real one says, where do we, where can we go? There's nowhere in the world that's going to bring satisfaction. There's nowhere else that's going to bring us fullness of joy in our life. For you have the words of eternal life. And that particular phrase, though, to whom shall we go? 
And I said, you know, I'm not saying to you, to what shall you go? Because that's what you're thinking. What shall you go to? I'm talking about a person to whom you shall go. Isn't that the case? Can you say amen somebody out there? That's right, amen. We go to a person, a living person. And who is that? The one that's alive forevermore that rose from the dead on the third day and ascended into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. And He ever lives to make intercession for us. And those that come to Him, He will save them to the uttermost. To whom shall we go? Oh, if only the world would see that. Mick Jagger would sing, I can't get no satisfaction. You're not going to find satisfaction in the world. You're going to try and try and try, and you're still going to come away unhappy. And you know, you're wondering, sometimes people think, well, I'm not like you. I I can never be like... I would say the same thing. If I was in your shoes and before my conversion, I said the same thing. I went to churches, something like this, and I said, hmm, you know, that's good for them, but I'm not there. I'm, I'm, I'm having a good old time, and I'm kind of like a little hesitant. It seems a little over the top for me. But God began to work in my life. I'm not trying to be like anybody. I'm trying to be what the Lord has conformed me to be like, to be like Him, like He has with you. I'm no better than you. I'm in the pulpit, but I'm right down in the pews with you. Matter of fact, I spent more time in the pews in my life than I have in the pulpit. So I know what it smells like to be in the pews. Because I was there for many years. And we're all in the pews. We're all in the same boat here. We don't have any like hierarchy of the, of the super spiritual and the ones that are just sort of grade school level. We're all in the same family of God. All loved equally. All have access to the same Word. All have the same Spirit. There's one Lord, one faith, one death. We're all connected to one another and we all have the same battles and struggles. And I know some of you may have struggles that I, I can't relate to, that I haven't been down that road. I thank God I didn't grow up in a dysfunctional home, that I didn't have issues, that I didn't have Saul's chasing me, that I didn't have this frustration that I was always on the run, always edgy about this or that. I had a comfortable home. I had loving parents that provided for me well. Growing up in the restaurant business, my father you know, took care of the family well. I had a job in the restaurant as well. And things went along quite smoothly in life. I had girls, cars, money. I could go to the gas station and just have them fill it up with going to my father's charge card. Who needs God, right? Seems like life is easy. But God supersedes that. It can make us realize that, I don't know what group it was that used to sing the words, happiness is just an illusion filled with sadness and confusion. What becomes of a broken heartache? That's right. Happiness is just an illusion filled with sadness and confusion. I think I mentioned, I don't know, was it at a Bible study a couple of weeks ago that uh, I was at a Christian coffee house and Barry Maguire, uh, who probably none of you know that name, some of you might, but he was a singer back in the 60s. He had one popular hit that was called, remember, The Eve of Destruction. Anyway, he had been converted, he was saved, and now he's going to Christian coffee houses. 
And besides singing Christian songs that he had been written, he actually changed the lyrics to the, to the song Eve of Destruction, which has a little taint of, of Christian truth to it. He altered some of the words, and it's, it's, it's great. I even like the tune, Eve of, you're on the eve of destruction. Remember that song? Anyway, so Barry Maguire is saying, you know, this life doesn't satisfy. And Barry Maguire was in the inner circle with the, with the Beach Boys and with the, even the Frank Sinatra parties. And he said, I was at a party with Frank Sinatra. And he was over in the corner. He had been drinking, obviously, but he was punching the wall in saying, is this all there is? Is this all there is? And this guy is the most famous singer in the United States, if not in the world at the time. And still feeling that uneasiness, unsatisfied, can't get what maybe others have and what could be gotten, he didn't have it. So if you're seeking earthly glory, if there's something in this world that you're pursuing and thinking, that will be it, that will be my nirvana, that will be my goal, that will be the end of the finish line for me once I get there, you'll discover that it isn't. Even Tom Brady with all his his uh, Super Bowl rings still had admitted interviews after receiving them saying, is this all there is? Is this all there is? But when you come to Christ, like the hymn writer said, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but out of the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they mocked me as I wailed. Now none but Christ can satisfy. None other name for me. There's love and life and lasting joy. Lord Jesus found in Thee. Found in Thee. David is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a man after God's heart who other than Jesus could be really classified after man after God's own heart. He says, my meat, and, my meat and drink is to do the will of Him who sent me. I am come that the world might know that I love the Father. He always, it says, did those things that were pleasing in His sight. So, Jesus, who is called the Son of David, because He comes in that line of descendancy from the tribe of Judah, there is a spiritual connection between the two as well. So, David, for us, is a prototype of Jesus Christ. And we see Christ, of course, fully committed to the Father. You know, one of the hardest things for us to do sometimes when we talk to people, I have family members that uh, have no, no interest in spiritual things about God. They try to avoid it. They don't want to hear it. And they're just content with their lifestyle. Because they don't understand. They don't see it. They can't grasp it. And the most I can think of is like the Scripture says, taste and see that the Lord is good. My wife is always um, bugging me about my eating uh, preferences. I don't like fish. Sorry, somebody owns a fish restaurant maybe. Uh, you know, let's go to the porterhouse one and not to the seafood place. Absolutely. That, that's me. And she wants to try to persuade me to go to sushi and to Taiwani or whatever they are. I don't know. Anything that doesn't have meat and potatoes and salad, thank you, but no thank you. And that's how people feel who don't know the Lord Jesus. It's like, no, no, that doesn't, that doesn't suit me. 
Now, maybe if I tried sushi, I might have a different aptitude. You'd probably say, yeah, Gary, what you waiting for? You, you want to go through life and never have sushi? I have a hard time looking at it. Blindfold me, maybe, and I might take a bite. But don't tell me what it is or where I am. I might be satisfied. Maybe. But that's what we want to say to the unconverted. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And we that know the Lord, bottom line, brothers and sisters, we say He is good. Not life is good, but He is good. And the life that He gives to us is goodness. It brings us joy and peace and happiness that we couldn't find in our own searching and in our own quest. And everybody's looking for something. Augustine said, the heart is not at rest until it, as it, till it is at rest with thee. That's where the real rest comes. Rest with thee. Now, David was a man that had this kind of peace. And it would take me too long, but I could say to you, read the writings of David in the Psalms and you will see a man that has connections to God. Like we have connections with the Lord. And sometimes we can get that connection working a little better than it ought to be. And sometimes we can turn off the current. I think I told you a case one time. There was a marriage counselor who um, was trying to counsel, uh, obviously had counseled lots of people, and he was counseling this particular couple. And somehow, someway, the wife of the husband, he was starting to connect with her. And before you know it, they get divorced. The counselor marries the divorced woman and they get married. Apparently, sometime later, he repented. And he was a Christian man. So let's not assume that Christians have it like it's a perfected life. We know that we all do stumble and fall. We all do err. We have difficulties at times. Well, James Dobson interviewed him and said to him, here you were a Christian marriage counselor counseling a couple and you yourself break that marriage up by getting involved with the woman and then end up marrying her. How did you do that? And Dobson said, didn't the bells go off in your head? And his response was, I cut the wires. Cut the wires. Christians can cut the wires. I've seen it. There are believers that temporarily at least they cut the wires and there's no communion with God and there's a, a sense of disconnectedness with the Word of God, number one, with the Lord and the Spirit. They're, they're isolating themselves from God. They're convicted and they can't stand it because the light exposes the darkness. And when a believer gets into a life of darkness, there's, there's guilt. And to avoid the guilt, you cut the wires off. And if the wires are cut off and you listen to the, the ungodly, walk not thou in the way with the ungodly, if you do that, you will find yourself comfortable because your conscience is deadened and you now engage yourself in the things that you once got freedom from and now you find yourself into a false freedom which is really bondage in the things of the world. We have to commend David for his Actions with Saul. You know, having the Lord in your life makes me think differently than the way I would naturally. If someone, Jesus says, slaps you on the right side of the cheek, I would say, I want to pop them back. That's a gut reaction. Gut reaction. When I play ball sometimes and I get, 
I get hit hard unnecessarily, my first gut reaction is, I'm going to knock them for a loop. But, as a Christian, I'm set back. Turn the other cheek. Well, that's David's response. He has a spirit of forgiveness in his heart towards Saul. And here Saul is hot on his heels and he's out to kill him. And David is calm. He's in the Lord's hands. And the most he could do was cut. And he even felt guilty about that. What we always need to have is a conscience, an active conscience. Every one of us needs to do a, an exam on ourselves and say, is our conscience active or have we silenced it? You know, and a believer does have a spiritually active conscience. Paul says, I have lived in a good conscience before God and men. And Paul says, my conscience also bearing me witness in the book of Romans. So there is a, a, a blessing that we have an inward compass, if you will. The conscience of a Christian can be very helpful in us making our decisions in, in what we want to do. And David obviously had that, and he was able to have a spirit of forgiveness with him. And maybe somebody has offended you or done, done something wrong to you, and you feel hurt by him or her or whoever that might be. What you should be able to do, the Scripture tells us, if you've been forgiven, you should be able to forgive others. If you don't, the, the question's got to rise. Am I, am I really a forgiven person? Do I have a right relationship with the Lord? And I hope that I can honestly say, no matter what anyone does to me, I'm going to forgive them. I'm going to have forgiveness in my heart towards them. And I'll try to clarify that in a minute. I go to do a Bible study on Thursdays in, 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 a, in a home, and there's a, a group of people that are in the lobby. So when I come in, these people don't like me. Not because I've done anything to them, but because of who I am and what I believe. And they know I'm a pastor and a preacher and a teacher and so on. And I'm going to have a Bible study. And under their breath, they say, oh, here comes the holy man, and so on and so forth. Well, I'm not going to let that affect me. I'm going to come in there and say, hello, everybody. Good to see you. Hope you're having a good day. And I gave them all, all gospel calendars and said, this is, a, this is for the new year, for time, and for eternity. So, we, we don't have to retreat. Paul says, being evilly entreated, we bless. If I've been blessed, I should be a blesser of others. So, even when I'm cursed, I can return a blessing to them. And that's the spirit of David here towards Saul. So we can have a spirit of forgiveness towards people. We would call that boundary forgiveness. And boundary for forgiveness is when we let go our anger, our resentment, and our desire for revenge. Yet at the same time, we maintain our boundaries and we pursue justice. We can't just forgive a person. We can in our heart, but there may not be a full uh, restitution or reconciliation with that person because that person may not be right. And they may not be in the right condition. In this case of having boundary forgiveness, the other party is not a consideration. I can't worry about whether that person uh, is, 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 is repentant, is sorry about what they've done to me, but I know I'm not going to let that resentment hinder me from still having a spirit of forgiveness towards them. It's, it's, it, it's about me at this, at this point. I'm dealing with my pent-up anxieties and hostile spirit. 
I'm not concerned about where the other party may be in this process. So every believer, I've been talking to a married couple having some difficulties, and I said to the woman, I said, you must, as a believer, have a spirit of forgiveness. You cannot maybe exhibit it right now, but inwardly you must say, this has been done against me, I can have a spirit of forgiveness. Because you have been forgiven by the Lord. Now the next one, this is the toughest one, is what we would call reconciled forgiveness. It's the ideal when our abuser or violator or enemy is genuinely repentant. And this could lead to a full reconciliation or at least begin the process towards that. When someone has reached the boundary of forgiveness, they should be willing to take it further. And they can only take it further if the person they have fallen out with is willing to make amends with them in a humble and God-fearing fashion, showing signs of repentance, regret, and remorse. They can't restore the relationship unless there's a 50-50 participation. In other words, I forgive you, but that forgiveness cannot be a full reconciliation with that individual until that person is saying, I am so sorry what I have done to you, or the, 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 the problems and the anxieties that I have brought in your life because of my actions. Once that person is ripe and ready to say that, the one who had boundary forgiveness can say, Amen, let's join hands, let's pray together, and praise God that we are united now in a reconciling fashion. That's the ultimate goal. David was never able to get to, 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 through to Saul. He showed boundary forgiveness. He, he showed Saul, Saul, I showed my love to you. I only snipped off a portion of the robe because I recognize you as an anointed king of the Lord's. And he wouldn't go any further than that. As far as me, why are you chasing me? He calls himself, I'm a dead dog. I'm like a flea. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. He took the humble place. Saul, we don't see that with him. That's not his attitude. He doesn't, he should have bowed before David and and he he puts on a show, but it's not the real thing and it it proved later because he still pursues David afterwards and still conceives him as an enemy. He doesn't show full orb forgiveness and full orb uh, repentance in his heart towards David. But we can have that. And we can be on David's side and look at his, him as a wonderful example for us. As one who is forgiven, who has forgiveness towards others and wants to keep it at that at least boundary level and a willingness to reach it further on into a reconciling forgiveness as well. David, might we be like him? Might you be like him? And I be like him? A man after God's own heart. I know all of us are thinking, boy, I got a lot of work to do. I'm with you. I'm with you. I got a lot of work to do too. I got motes in my eyes. I'm far from reaching like Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect or mature or advanced. I'm, I'm, I'm still on first base. I haven't even got to second yet, if I'm even there. So I, I know that's. That there's, there's goals ahead that we, we seek to reach. But praise God that we have examples like a David who we can follow, who didn't allow circumstances to dictate for him what he should do. He didn't allow the multitudes who wanted to force him into this to do. And he didn't even follow his own heart, but rather he allowed, he allowed his conscience to be active and to 
call the shots for the day. And the end run is that the feud was 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 defused, if I can say. It was terminated for the point because of David's conduct. And he took, as it were, the sword of anger right out of Saul's hands. You know, the Bible says that a soft answer will turn away wrath. My grandmother used to say, and I think she got it from her grandmother or mother, used to say, the tongue has no bones, but it breaks them. You got the point? The tongue has no bones, but it breaks them. Because what you say can really cause big time damage. So how we need to be careful even with our mouth. But hopefully, brothers and sisters, we've learned something from David. We see a spirit that should be imitable for us so that we can be men and women of God. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank You for Your precious Word. Thank You for the truth that it contains. Thank You, Lord, that these are not just fables. These are not just mystical stories that are beyond the capacity for Your people to imitate. But thank You, Lord, that we have David's that we can look at in his life and learn from him ways that should help us to function, Lord, more in the capacity that you have given us to be able to operate in. And Lord, for anyone here in this room that doesn't know Jesus, Christ is their Savior, Lord, would you have mercy upon them? Would you make this day a special day to them? Would you make them realize, Lord, that we are what we are because of a miracle? A miracle that they can experience as well by repenting of their sins and putting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh God, have mercy, we pray. Bless us for the rest of the day as we give you worship and thanks in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song. He will hold me fast.